Money FM 89.3, the best of your money. Money and me on your money, only on Money FM 89.3. How could an investor handle markets hitting record highs? If you're just starting, is investing when markets are high a bad idea? We put China's financial market in focus today. China is seeking to boost growth and signal transparency in its markets. It announced at a press conference a future cut to the reserve ratio requirements for banks. They'll be cut by 50 basis points from next month, February 5th, which will provide some 1 trillion yen in long-term capital. The PBOC or People's Bank of China says there's room for further monetary policy easing. Will this help create better conditions for China's financial markets? And then we turn to India, which pipped Hong Kong on Monday to the title of world's fourth largest stock market. We're seeing India benefiting from China's economic struggles, which have really um, stymied growth over in Hong Kong. So to what extent is China, is India fast becoming a preferred market for investors? And we're going to start off with Japan's market rally. We just did a show that looked at Singapore's first active ETF, which is um, putting its bet on Japan equities. And that was really interesting, I have to say, uh, last week on Monday. But joining us this week is the one and the only, that's how people introduce him here, you know, the one and the only Arun Pai investments team from the Monks Hill Ventures. Good morning, Arun. Good morning, Michelle. <laughs> Let's start with Japan. A uh, lot to go over here. Uh, if you've been looking at the news, the Nikkei share average rallied to a fresh 34-week peak just earlier this week. So, what is driving the advancement of Japanese uh, indexes? Yeah, truly, what a what an amazing run, huh? The yeah. uh, index. I think maybe it's simpler to like, uh, break this down into two parts, uh, the macro section and the micro section. Within the macro area, a couple of forces that have been really helpful uh, and providing a nice tailwind to uh, the stock exchange is firstly, BOJ, uh, letting market forces dictate what happens to the interest rate curve in the back end. Inflation has picked up uh, a little bit. I mean, basically, there was stagflation or deflation in Japan for God knows how many decades. The past, like, four, five, seven years, numbers seem to have picked up a little bit more, but not to the point where the central bank needs to come in and put a massive break on it, right? So I think that's been a good tailwind. And last but not least, uh, the currency. If you look back, I think over the past five years, the currency is basically uh, depreciated by close to 50%, five zero. And I guess maybe that's the reason why half of Singapore is skiing in Japan right now. I, I don't know. But it, it, the, the, the currency is weakened so much. Uh, people are traveling over there. Manufacturing exports become a lot cheaper. It's been helping the economy grow quite significantly. But that's all on the macro side. I think zooming in a little bit and going into the micro section, this is where things get a little bit more interesting. If you look at governance, going back to like, say, 20, 30 years, all these really large conglomerates in Japan basically were just dinosaurs. Right, you you sat and had cross ownership. There were various interconnected linkedness between all the top conglomerates. You had no visibility or clarity into how to truly execute on anything. There was no concept of dividends. All of that seems to have changed. Mm. And seeing that, activist investors have also gotten involved. I mean, it would be unheard of 
to think about an activist investor from the US or Europe taking over a company, leave alone something like Toshiba or something, like buying it over, taking it public, uh, taking it private in Japan. I think, as you mentioned, China, uh, I think there is an aspect where so much capital was flowing into China, it has to find an area where to go. And it seems to be one of these places, especially because the momentum is behind it. And last but not least, true value, right? This was an index, this was a market that basically everyone had forgotten. There were certain companies, especially the trading houses, that were basically just cash cows, amazing yield, and uh, you needed a spark. Uh, along came uh, Warren Buffett and Berkshire, made, I think, I think right now they've made close to like five or seven billion dollars in uh, paper profits. And that just attracted a whole bunch of other investors to see if there were any other value nuggets in the market. So I think that's the overall picture that I can see as to why the markets have been rallying quite a lot over there. Really interesting. So reforms, I mean, it was last year, 2023, when we see the Tokyo Exchange Group rolling out these financial reforms, many requirements for the first time, like requiring shares of listed companies to trade above a price-to-book ratio of one. And uh, corporations having to explain why their shares trade below that number and also facing the prospect of being delisted moving ahead. So stock market reforms and also China's woes putting Japan back on the map. Next question, I suppose, for investors is can can this continue the trajectory upwards? Yeah, that, that's always where it becomes difficult, right? Like oh, looking in the yeah. rear view mirror is the easy part. <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, I, I, if you look at uh, valuation metrics, Japan is quite attractive, I would say. Uh, it, it's not gotten to the extremely frothy level, uh, nor should that be expected given where interest rates are. I would say it's relatively even balanced. I would say if an investor or a listener of your show is looking to truly have a global approach to investing, uh, Japan forming some part of that portfolio definitely is, you know, from a value perspective at least, there's, there's definitely value to be had over there. So for me personally, in my portfolio, it takes up about a, like a 5 to 10% uh, allocation. Interesting. Uh, so you don't see any parallels between what happened in the 1990s what's commonly referred to as sort of the Japanese bubble starting to form there, which precedes this long period of decline. Very different time far, now. Is that- far, far from it. I mean, back then, I think there was this amazing statistic where the size of your bathroom, like real estate and real estate, and we, you know, we're going to be talking about China soon, I'm sure. Yep. Uh, real estate in Japan, basically the size of your toilet was the equivalent of like a flat, like a full-size apartment in New York. It, it was just, it, things were just, there was so much exuberance in the market. Tech manufacturing was going gangbuster. Uh, they did not have a demographics crisis uh, to some extent that they have right now. Things were very, very different back then. It, it was an absolute, like, massive bubble. And, you know, always say it's difficult to predict bubbles, especially when you're inside one. Just go back to uh, absolute valuation metric, right? Like, if you think about price-to-earnings ratio, price-to-book, uh, revenue multiples that these companies are trading on, back then was a very, very different story. I think right now, still, it's still, uh, you know, uh, there has to be still more cleaning out. Things take time in Japan. There's a long history of culture of uh, things being more comfortable to be more steady state rather than dramatic change. But I think at least what I've seen over the past three to five years, uh, there does seem to be a marked change. And as long as the government, the regulator are heading in the right direction, coupled with the macro forces don't really clamp down uh, the economy's growth, I think uh, equity prices are relatively attractive. All right, let's continue with our theme of why are stock markets hitting such highs? And let's look at um, the other end of the argument, 
with China. It's quite a route, hasn't it? We've seen with Chinese stocks and Hong Kong stocks erasing more than $6 trillion in market value since 2021. Investors skeptical of China's uh, latest efforts to sort of inject confidence back in the market, uh, looking at a $278 billion package to buy mainland shares via offshore trading links for one. Um, today's news as well, uh, China cutting the reserve ratio requirements for banks, making it easier for banks to give out loans, so signaling room for further policy, monetary policy easing. Um, and we've seen hedge funds here in Singapore, the Singapore hedge fund, Asia Genesis Asset Management closed down because of the bets, the wrong bets it made. It said it saw an 18% drawdown following the China stock market route. So when you look at China, what do you make of the latest efforts to rescue the stock market from further uh, downward spirals? Yeah, this is a, a tough one. That uh, look, e- even I've lost uh, paper money on this right now, right? And it's uh, still a bit confusing to me as to the extent of the correction. I think, uh, like you mentioned, Genesis Asia Management—they have this massive focus on China and Hong Kong. And when you start off the year three weeks in, and you're already down close to twenty percent, it's basically very, very difficult for a hedge fund to recover from that, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, there were sadly no other options, I guess, for them. I think maybe going granular as to the news that just came out in terms of the $280 billion package, et cetera, and the interest rate cut for banks, I don't know if it's enough. Mm. I think the fundamental problem that the country and economy is going through right now is that it has lost the trust of foreign investors. It's not sitting in the greatest position geopolitically, you know, going up against the U.S., all these latest technology, chips, semiconductors, being completely shut off from that. And to recover from that, which I still do believe there is that inherent talent market, all the other like good stuff, quote unquote, that's happening within China. While I am confident that they will be able to come out of this in the long run, in the short term, things definitely look very bleak. It's not like you can just snap your fingers and suddenly start creating the kind of stuff that TSMC, AS. Have taken decades to create, right? They're still like probably five, 10 plus years behind on that, regardless of how many billions you throw into it. Mm. I think if you think about the government, again, it's one of these things, right? Where while I do believe in the long run, what they kind of set out to do in terms of uh, the tuition industry in China was just going completely crazy. They had to clamp that down. The gaming industry was really affecting like young children spending hours on their mobile phones or gaming consoles that had to be uh, reduced to some extent. The problem came where was in the execution, I felt. Especially Western investors are not used to the government suddenly just coming down and lopping off an entire industry, right? Even if it's in China, you would think that when you have so many unicorns and decacorns, private and publicly traded, the government wouldn't just come in and like completely shut it down. That happened, obviously. And last but not least, property, right? At the end of the day, that's the biggest uh, sector of the GDP. And uh, the problem over there is that the local population, they have lost faith. And when that starts happening at the scale that China is already at, you really need a bazooka to fix the situation. And I think they should just take cues from what I think the U.S. did phenomenally well back in 2008, right? You request banks. Uh, there are differences, obviously. Banks in China kind of have to follow exactly what the central bank says uh, and what the government says, a large extent different from what happens in the U.S. But any amount of capital infusion or anything else in these banks, then you see, right? They just keep the money themselves because that's the best return for from a risk-reward perspective. They will, they'll evaluate it as compared to necessarily dumping that money into uh, 
these property uh, stocks that are basically just falling off a cliff. So I think what's required are core, the core issue in property has to be solved first and foremost. Once that's done, then you can start going to all the other sectors and economies and everything else within China, but property has to be solved. Until that's not solved, I think there's going to be various issues still uh, within the stock market. That's it, because it just intensifies all the financial risks and, um, you know, drags down consumer confidence as well. So Beijing trying to do its best to deleverage the, the real estate sector. But until it is able to resolve these serious debt problems of property developers, I have to agree with you there. Um, listeners often say and, and think Chinese stocks seem so cheap now. If you have a long term view on China, is this a good time to start stocking up? What do you say? I agree in terms of the long-term aspects of investing in China, right? I think when it comes to being cheap, people should be a little bit careful given there are a lot of value traps out there in the Chinese market. You take a look at like past performance of a business and you're like, oh, this is trading at like single digit price to earnings multiple. It doesn't really mean much unless the company can truly turn around over the next three, four years and start showing earnings growth again. Mm. And where does that earnings growth and everything else, where does like growth eventually come from. It comes from the underlying fact of, you know, you would need to have consumers who are willing to spend that money. You need to have businesses that are relatively thriving, willing to shell out uh, dollars for services or software or purchasing new manufacturing setups, etc. I think that's the part that just taking a look purely in terms of past metrics and seeing how low they are right now, I'm not sure whether it's truly that attractive. In many cases, the market is right. Stock prices are trading at such low quote-unquote multiples because the underlying performance of the business is actually quite weak. Uh, Alibaba, you know, it's a stock that I really like. It's been uh, trading abysmally, but trading abysmally on the back of the fact that the business itself has been performing quite poorly, right? I mean, you had your, they wanted to split it up into like spin-off divisions, have multiple IPOs to unlock value. Would have been great, sadly did not work out. And financial IPO, we all know what a disaster that's been. Jack Ma, who is the true rock star tech entrepreneur in China, uh, Wings got clipped because he kind of flew too close to the sun. Competition in China, uh, I was reading uh, articles about how there are like uh, a couple, like uh, I forget the exact name, but if I'm not mistaken, like the GMV of the shopping marketplace has basically overtaken that of Alibaba, which would be would have been unheard of five, 10 years ago. So is Alibaba cheap? Yeah, but it depends on what metric you're looking at. And at least in the immediate future, things are not looking great. Before I double down and scale up my positions even further, I would really want to see the property sector issue being resolved. Mm -hmm. And then I think it'll give me more confidence. Fantastic. We recognize that for an investor, you might feel, you know, what goes up must come down. It's scary investing when you see uh, stock markets climb. So we're helping you out with this show today. Let's look at what's going on over in India, which has overtaken Hong Kong to become the fourth largest stock market. Goodness me, value of shares listed on the Indian exchanges moving over four trillion as of the close on Monday, just slightly over uh, Hong Kong, 4.29 for Hong Kong, 4.33 for India. But help us understand why equities in India have been booming lately. Look, the country's been in an absolute dare right? You've got amazing demographics. I think population of India just overtook China. I think it was like a couple of months ago or something. Young population, English speaking, digitally native, GDP growth of India for like decently sized economy, I believe is the 
highest in the world. Uh, Southeast Asia as a region, I think, comes uh, second closest. So we have good macroeconomic tailwinds. India definitely has even better. Government and governance, which was a big issue in China, in India, sorry, for decades, has been actually quite stable under the ruling of uh, Prime Minister Modi. I think McKinsey came out with the research report recently, I think in the last year or something, calling it as the country of the century. And as of right now, if things continue to stand, there's no reason as to why the country won't keep doing phenomenally well and keep scaling up uh, to what it's been achieving in the past like 10-15 years. Amazing growth and naturally the equity markets will follow on the back of that. When you look at India's economy for 2024, what stands out for you? I mean, for, before we go there, some say, yeah, you know, India's stock markets coinciding with the slump in Hong Kong, primarily benefiting from all, all these flows of money that uh, you were heading to China need to head somewhere else. So um, given the demographic shifts that you're seeing as well, you know, you just mentioned India overtaking China in terms of population. Do you think that this is a an, quite an important driver for India to possibly overtake China as the second largest economy in the world? <laughs> in, in one word, no. <laughs> Look, what, what, happened in, what, what happened in China, Michelle, was truly an economic miracle, right? Like, I don't think in that relatively short period of time have so many hundreds of millions of people been picked up from below the poverty line and now are like quite solidly within the middle class gap. India has a long way to go before that. Just given the fundamental underlying structure of the way things are run in India, you can't have that kind of breathtaking rapid growth the way it happened in China. I mean, the U.S. is the U.S. after like 200 years. And I would draw more similar parallels to India and the U.S. in terms of over the next 100, 150 years. Yes, because I didn't give a timeline. I was going to say by 2075. <laughs> 2075, I would I would still highly doubt it. Like, <laughs> really? Uh, I, this is like a, a multi-hundred year. I mean, if I was Masasan and trying to like invest in the next 200 years, then I, I, I would say that's the case. But things will take time. It, it's not a country. It's not, the things are not set up that regardless of what people might say about Modi, it's not, uh, it, it, the setup is not such that you can just show up and suddenly wave your magic wand, snap your fingers, and you can clean out entire cities and set up like high-tech centers over there. You can force companies to do exactly your bidding. It, it doesn't work like that. It doesn't work in the US like that. It doesn't work in India like that. China is very different. Mm -hmm. And they were, you know, a lot of things went right for China for it to have uh, for the realized economic miracle that got created in the country. I'm quite a big believer in India, but I do feel that it's not going to be overnight. It's not going to be over the next couple of years, but you will be seeing continuous green shoots, right? Like what we've seen in the past five, six, seven, eight years, yeah. continuous steady growth. Things are shaping up in the right direction. There will be ups and downs, uh, just like any economy is, but uh, things will take time. Yes, it's been described as a slow trundling elephant, India, <laughs> you know? And actually, David Roche, this veteran investor, has said that he is convinced that India could overtake China in the very, very long term because he's seeing a transfer of fixed investment by corporations and also portfolio investments flowing out of China and into India. So, just food for thought, people. Two sides of the coin. <laughs> <laughs> when you're looking at 2024, I'm just curious, are, are you feeling like that, that there's going to be increased 
risk this year that investors need to be on the lookout for? I mean, um, that there's higher volatility risk this year in 2024. Is that what you're feeling or not at all? Look, if you go back in time and you look at any instant, right, there'll always be some kind of potential geopolitical issues. There'll always be some kind of macro issues of either inflation's too high, inflation's too low, interest rates are too high, interest rates are too low. I think what's really important for investing in the long run is to kind of get rid of all that noise and really hone in on where you see there's value and where you can see there's good growth within the business with the right economic mode. If listeners are not looking at, say, a dolly and price chart and wondering what the next pick of the currency is going to be, mm-hmm. why, why bother to get yourself involved in all of that stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Instead, it's just so much easier mm. to just think back and be like, look, you know what? I really like this product. I can see 10 million other people really like this product. This company has amazing customer experience. I would not take this over anything else. Why is that the case? Is that sustainable for the long run? Do you believe in management? Go through these relatively standard checkpoints, like checklist questions. And once that's done, then you uh, deploy capital into it in a reasonable, non-concentrated manner for the most part, because you need to diversify your risk, be it ETFs, be it single name stocks, whatever you want to think about. The vast majority... I would say that's the right quote-unquote approach to investing Mm. rather than getting bogged down by noise, getting in, getting out of the market, suddenly you see a headline and then change your investment stance. Well, I think when people are seeing, when people see these turning tides in inflation, in monetary policy, in growth, you know, these are big macro tides that they want to somehow be able to understand in order to be a responsible investor, at least at least to themselves. You know, they want to be able to have an opinion, like when you see things moving to this extent. I agree with you to a large extent where people need to be clued into the markets. They need to understand what's happening and, and rationalize it internally, right? Oh, yes. but, so if you take, say, truly successful companies over the past, say, 20, 30, 40 years, right? Microsoft, uh, Google, a relatively uh, shorter time frame. Facebook may be a little bit less so. If you take a look at like successful companies, they've been through typical ups and downs of economic cycles, macro cycles, geopolitical issues. That is what you do. That's just the nature nature of investing. If you thought that you could time Facebook stock before interest rates became too high and then interest rates became too low, it's impossible. You you would never be able to do it. All of this sounds great in retrospect. I would question anyone who can predict what the market's going to be doing in the next three, six, nine months to a year's time. Sure, just for the fun of it, you can, but you can't monetize on that information because it's just completely random. <laughs> it, it, it's not, it, is, it, it is not as difficult as a lot of financial pundits go out there and make it sound. If you yes. ask any of those yes. people, how many people have actually mm-hmm. beaten the market? Less than 50% have actually beaten just the ETF, just the stock market index. So if you're a listener of the show and you want to beat 50% of people out there who claim they know a lot about interest rates and macro environment and geopolitical issues, yeah. just go and buy the index. You'll be better than 50% of them. That's hey, the <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right. Fantastic. We'll have to leave it there for the news. Thank you so much, Arun. Thanks as always for having me, Michelle. Arun Pai, delightful Arun Pai from the investments team at Monks Hill Ventures. We must break for the news. Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at audio.sg or download the audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O, audio at the App Store and Google Play.